draw us together as you've drawn us to your son. That we might worship you as we worship him. We might honor you as we honor him. That we might find life from you as we find life through him. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds this evening. Give us understanding that we might understand your word. That we might glorify the son. That we might... Um, Trust more fully in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at John chapter 5. Tonight we're not going to bounce around uh, much in John. We're going to focus on a, um, on a single uh, section within the gospel. I do want to set its context. And um, uh, just uh, to you know, give you the, the lead up to where we are, we're going to look at uh, Jesus' words from verse 19 to the end of chapter 5. But um, in the context, uh, you know, we've looked at this passage before, but the, uh, Jesus has just healed a man um, on a Sabbath day. The man was by a pool where he thought uh, he might uh, somehow be able to get down to this pool at particular times where he could be miraculously healed, but it wasn't working out for him. Um, he didn't have anyone to help him get down to the pool. Whether or not those waters um, could really heal, uh, the text does not uh, evaluate that question. The main point is that there is one who can heal, and Jesus is, is uh, there, and so he heals him. And this becomes a point of uh, issue, a contentious issue, because uh, this, uh, you know, the, the, the Jews are upset with Jesus because he's healing on a Sabbath day. And so from their vantage point, this is work. This is not something he should be doing. Um, in other contexts, he has made a case for why this is not, uh, this is not a violation of the Sabbath, namely because um, uh, he's doing good. He's, doing, he's showing mercy on the Sabbath, which is consistent with Sabbath keeping. Um, because also, just based on precedent, the Israelites, uh, they circumcised on the eighth day even if it was a sabbath day and jesus is doing something that is like that work which was meant to be a picture of uh of being made new a picture of um uh, of new life and um here jesus is doing something even greater giving the whole man new life and so we see in another context he defends his actions when he heals on the sabbath day by saying he's making a whole ma a man whole he's not just doing a, a minor work which they would certainly permit but in this particular context, <clears throat> he justifies what he's doing by a reference to himself. In verse 17, but Jesus answered them when they, when they um, charged him for this and they, they uh, were persecuting him. He said, my father is working until now and I am working. And we continue, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So I want to pick up from there and, and uh, read the rest of this chapter. And then what we'll do is we'll reflect on how, uh, what we learn concerning the person and the work of Christ, particularly with reference to the testimony of the father to the, uh, concerning the son. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Well, as we think about the person and work of Christ, um, here we're going to see, we see again testimony concerning uh, these two uh, these two aspects of Christology. Um, there's a the strong emphasis on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, but we also see a, um, uh, uh, an emphasis as well on his humanity, uh, particularly in the, um, in the description of him as, a, as the Son of Man. Um, and we'll talk about that when we come to it. Uh, but then there's also, uh, bound up with this, there, there's a, a good deal of discussion concerning the work of Christ primarily with respect to um, his life-giving work and his work of judgment. Um, and these works are described in such a way where they are bound up with uh, the testimony concerning his person. So um, we've, in the, in the past few weeks as we've gone through this study, we've been thinking about testimony and how important that is in John's gospel, right? So we, we've thought about the testimony of John the Baptist, and we see that John the, the apostle speaks of that testimony here, uh, as he, as he um, records Jesus' words. We've talked about the testimony of Moses uh, through the scriptures, through the Old Testament, particularly those, uh, the first five books of the, of the Bible. And again, we see reference made to Moses here in this text and those, um, the, the, that testimony. But primarily, uh, the spotlight, if you will, is going to be shined upon the testimony of the Father, uh, in, in uh, various ways, um, the testimony of the Father through the works that he's given to Christ to do and the testimony of the Father that he himself has borne concerning Jesus, the things that he himself has said concerning him. So I do want to spend most of our time in chapter 5, but we do need to remind ourselves of a few things. Uh, if you remember from chapter 1, um, where we're first introduced to the Father's testimony concerning the Son, it's, um, it's, when, it's part of John's own testimony concerning uh, what the Father said to him concerning the one who comes after him. Uh, I'll read a, a, a bit from verse 29 of chapter 1 through verse 34 just to remind you. The next day he, that's John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me, 
I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And you see, so you see there, part of John's own testimony was, uh, was simply the fact that God had spoken to him. That God had given him the instructions so that he might properly identify the Christ, that he might recognize him when he comes. And so John, part of his ministry of baptism, surely it was, it was to call the people to repentance, but part of that ministry was also for the purpose of revealing the Christ to Israel, that Jesus might be revealed to the people as the one who is the Son of God. So John's testimony ultimately is, um, as he bears witness to, the, to Christ, he also bears witness to what the Father has, has said concerning Jesus. And I think that's important to see that, that this text does allude back to that um, down later on, on uh, in the text. When he speaks about John, and he in verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. He goes on to speak about that testimony of the Father. Excuse me. Um, anyway, so you have that testimony of the Father set forward earlier in this gospel. We've seen that in the synoptic gospels, the way that God uh, in Matthew and Luke, for instance, the way he speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism, the way he speaks at the transfiguration, those kinds of events, that's how the Father is giving his testimony. And it's, a, uh, it's just uh, one that we should, uh, we should trust. Question? No, I'm sorry. Um, so in any case, we have that aspect of it. And then the second aspect that we need to consider has to do with... Um, with uh, uh, the works that God has given Jesus to do and how the testimony that these also, the role they also play in testifying to who he is. And so here, uh, we won't go into detail, uh, but in the scope of John's gospel, uh, you may have heard this, this may be new to you, but John uh, structures at least the, the, the first large section of his gospel, the, you could say the first half or so, around seven signs that Jesus performs, seven works that he does that are sign works. And you see, for instance, after he turns the uh, water into wine at Cana in chapter 2, at the conclusion of that, in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And you see then later in chapter 4, at the very end, uh, chapter 4 and verse 54, after Jesus has um, healed an official son again in Cana in Galilee, it says, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. John does not always explicitly identify what the signs are, but throughout this section of the gospel, we see Jesus doing these mighty works that are meant to be uh, testimonies. They're meant to testify to who he is. And here in this text, we see that these are described as works that the Father has given him. So as we come to chapter 5 and we, we listen then to Jesus' words, um, there will be further works after this discourse, the feeding the 5,000, walking on water, so on and so forth. But as we consider his discourse about these works and about himself and about his relationship to the Father, uh, I want to stop, I want to try and pull apart this, um, uh, this discourse together uh, to understand what it is that he's saying concerning himself. Um, let, me, let me ask you all to, uh, to try to engage you in this process. Let's just start with the first 24, uh, the first several verses from verse 19 through 24. And let me ask you to tell me what are some of the things that you see uh, and observe um, with respect to what Jesus says about who he is and what he's come to do. He is the Son. So he regularly refers to himself as the Son. 
Um, what I did in, as I was studying this text is I, I like to use colors, um, and I, I color you know, common, common words. I go through and color code them so that I can quickly scan down and see oh, all the references to the sun. And um, I can't just quickly count them. There's so many. But there's, um, there's easily uh, more than uh, six or seven, maybe eight or nine instances where we see reference made to the sun, where he refers to himself in that way. So that he is the sun, um, which is, uh, it's just, you know, I mean, it's not so strange for us to hear that language based on all we've been talking about in these past weeks concerning the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but I think it would have been strange to them in that context to hear this, hear him consistently referring to himself as the sun, the sun. Uh, I mean, they're all sons of somebody in some sense, but he's referring to himself as the sun in res- with respect to God in that unique way. What, what else do we see? Go ahead, anyone, just shout it out. That's right. He's doing what he sees his father doing. There is a... The way I look at this is um, you see indications of, uh, in all these different phrases that we read, equality, the equality of the Son with the Father, the unity of the Son with the Father, as well as the distinctness between the Son and the Father, and indications of a relationship uh, between the Son and the Father. And so this would be an example that he... He does what he sees the Father doing. There is an, there is an example of the, the unity. We could also tease that out and show how that shows something of the relationship between the Son and the Father, and we'll come back to that. But you're seeing examples of the, in that, I think, primarily, the unity that exists between the Son and the Father, that, that sense of oneness um, that's reflected later when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Uh, recall he said, in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. And the Jews who heard him recognized that in that statement, he was, um, he, in calling God his own father, he was making himself equal with God. That he, you know, in, in that, uh, in the sense of his being, a, a sense of being equal. So there's a, in any case, as, as um, Matt observed, uh, he does what he sees the father doing. What are some of the other ways in which Jesus describes that kind of, that relationship of seeing what the Father's doing? Look at the particular phrases. How does he describe his own actions? Right there in, in verse 19. What, what can he not do? He can't do anything by himself or anything of his own accord. What do you think, just some thoughts, what does that mean? Or you have questions? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. He can't, he can't go rogue. You know, when we think about the doctrine of the Trinity and we think about Christology, when we recognize that, uh, that, that there is one God in terms of his nature, but the one God exists eternally in three persons, we can speak of certain, uh, certain properties that are proper to the nature of God and certain properties that are proper to a person, to, the, to, to one of the persons of the, of the Trinity. But we ought not to think about the, the Trinity as though it were like this club of three guys kind of hanging out and having, you know, talking, and each has his own mind, each has his own will, and each has his own ideas, and they just happen to agree uh, on pretty much everything. I think in our, in our modern evangelical colloquial way of thinking, we kind of sometimes get this idea in our minds. And that's not really the way that God is. Um, we talk about the will, the, the, the will of a... Of a, of a being, that's something that's proper to the nature. Okay, So uh, we would say, theologians would say, that there is one will in God. There's not three wills. The Father doesn't have this separate will from the Son, from the Spirit. There's one will in God. And we see that kind of thing evidenced, and you know, the, the reason why theologians will say that is they, they, they understand it as the appropriate um, implication of of texts like this one, where we read, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. A good way, like you said, of, it's not like he just decides to do some things and there's some overlap in his will with the will of the father. He can only do that which he sees the father doing. And as we scan down the page, we're going to see 
other ways in which he speaks of that unity of will. Um, look, for instance, in um, verse 30. I, he says a similar thing. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? There is a one thing to, to keep in mind is, as we think about the person of Christ, is we have a union of natures, right? He's, a, he's fully God, and he's fully man. And if will is proper to the nature, he has two wills, a divine will and a human will, right? And so there's a sense in which there is a human willing will, a human desire, which he submits fully to the will of God. But in terms of his sonship as being the son of God, he, he does not have this distinct will. He does not have this, this uh, independent desire to go and do his own thing. No, he, there's, there's one will in God, and the son of God appropriates that in his person. But it's, uh, it's in full conformity, in full unity with the will of the Father. And in his humanity, he doesn't go rogue in that, in that respect either. He does not act upon his own accord. He does not seek his own will. He seeks the will of the one who sent him. And so even though he has taken to himself this human nature, that does not stop him from living in that, you know, to, to, uh, from, from living in accord with his full deity and from living consistent with that unity with the Father. Um, that kind, of, that kind of theological reasoning, uh, it, it arises from texts like this, where we do see that unity of will, unity of mind, that kind of um, activity. Certainly, he, his actions will be, you, you can distinguish the way in which he acts from the way in which the Father acts in certain respects, and we'll see that in this text. But in terms of this, the will, it's, it's the same willingness, the same desires. So these are kinds of things that point to his, the unity of the Son with the Father. He is a distinct person, but his will is the same as the will of the Father. What about the equality? What are some of the ways in which this text points to the equality of the Son with the Father? Yes, uh, Lori, I'm sorry, I'm not looking up. Absolutely. Yeah, so he's, he's doing things that are the unique prerogative of God. Right? He's, doing divine, he's taking divine actions. And there's, that flows from something he says in verse 26. Look at this, this uh, statement. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is an extraordinary verse for what it, what it speaks to. It's... Um, one of, the, one of the examples of the way John and his gospel can use simple language and speak with, um, with uh, great conciseness and yet say um, absolutely profound, the, the most profound things that you could ever imagine. The Father has life in himself. What, what does that mean? Lori. He's eternal. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's like what he says to Moses, what, what God says to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. Tell him I am sent you. It's like what he says to John in Revelation. I'm the one, uh, the, the one who was and is and is to come. Right? There's these, uh, this expression of eternality. We would phrase it in our modern way as in terms of self-existence that God exists within himself, that there's no cause outside of him that causes him to come into being. He is the one being in the whole universe that exists in himself. And so here Jesus says of the Father, the Father has life in himself. But it's an amazing statement because he can also say of the Son, uh, that, you know, so it's for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also 
to have life in himself. This, this statement has the, the sense of the son having life in himself in the same way, in the same like manner. So just as the father is self-existent, has that self-existent life in himself, there's no cause, so too the son has a self-existent life in himself. And this is extraordinary because this is something that is granted to him by the father. So one of the, you know, the, when, we, when we talk about the son being eternally begotten of the father, the son is the eternally begotten son. We, we've, ta- we've talked about this before, how we tend to think of that word begotten as something, as a definitive act that happened in time. So it has to have a historical beginning, right? If uh, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac is the begotten son of Abraham, he was begotten in time. There was a time when Isaac was not. But we don't use it that way when we speak of the Son of God. He is, he was, he is, and will always be. The, the begotten son. This is something that is eternally true of him. How can we say that? Well, it's the only way to make sense of what John has said here. Um, he, if he has life in himself, and yet this life in himself is something that is granted to him, it must be something that is eternally true, not something that came to be true in the course of time. He must always have life in himself as a grant that is granted to him by the Father. And so this is why we say of the Son that he is the, uh, as using John's language, the only begotten Son, the uniquely begotten Son, uh, or the one who is eternally begotten of the Father. Because of verses, texts like this, that express that, um, uh, that uh, aspect of his divine nature in terms of it being a grant from the Father to the Son. So you see, so we're kind of moving in from the, uh, the equality with the Father also to a consideration of his relationship to the Father. As the Son, he is the begotten Son. There's a relationship. One thing you'll never see is uh, you'll never see a reversal of uh, that language of granting. Uh, also, we see language of sending in this text. Um, some of this language only works in one direction. The Son is sent by the Father. We never, ever will see, never have seen, never will see, the Son is the one sending the Father. It doesn't work that way. We never see that the Son is granting the Father life in himself or anything like this. We never see that the, um, uh, the Son is giving the Father works to accomplish. It's always, oh, there's one direction in which this relationship is seen. It's from the Father to the Son. So that, too, is consistent with that eternal, unchanging relationship between the Father and the Son, which makes him the Son, which makes it right to call him the Son, which makes that word meaningful in a sense that it's not just um, an arbitrary designation that, that came to be the case, but one that is eternally true. He always and forever will be uh, properly called the Son, and uniquely so. And so, anyway, you you see that kind of that, that uh, again. Here's a text which um, from which these ideas come from, uh, for, uh, which we can exegetically support these uh, these declarations concerning the person of Christ. We understand him to be the Son of God, meaning that he's equal with God and yet distinct from the Father, and in that relationship with the Father, that is eternal. Uh, marked by unity and yet distinct. Questions, comments on that? Yeah, so one of the things that, um, I mean, we have him healing the official son at the end of chapter 4, and this son is at the point of death. Um, he doesn't actually come down with the official. He just says, your son will live. And, and the man, the, the child uh, recovers. Um, my sense with those kinds of texts is that we're to understand uh, when, a, when someone comes near to the point of death, 
that it is a resurrection-like work, but it's, uh, of course, Lazarus is going to go further beyond that to demonstrate the completeness of his ability to raise the dead. I think the other thing that you're getting at, tell me if I'm wrong, is, you know, the, with the question, um, is uh, how can we relate this to the other, the testimony of the other Gospels in terms of chronology? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things, let, let me t- t- deal with a couple of p- points on uh, of these points. It, it, it's a fruitful, it's a fruitful study to consider, to seek to harmonize the gospels and to seek to understand where things uh, come together in terms of chronology. Um, there's some really, there's a wonderful essay on that does this with, with um, Mark's gospel and John's gospel titled, uh, John for Readers of Mark and, by Richard Bauckham, and he argues that, uh, that John, his readers were aware of Mark. He knew this, and so there's cues in here that kind of help you to situate events relative to things that you read in Mark. Having said that, as a general rule of thumb, uh, we also want to let, the, you know, let John's testimony be John's testimony. And so even if chrono- chronologically speaking, there, are, there have been resurrection events where Jesus has raised someone from the dead prior to this event. Um, John has not yet testified to those. And so, like, let his narrative kind of work within, you know, the the way that his testimony is going to work. He'll tell you about the ones he wants to tell you about when he wants to. Um, And so that allows what Jesus is saying, how you're going to see greater works. And uh, we we, we think of, you know, the the feeding of the 5,000 comes up. He's going to walk across water. He's going to heal a blind man. Um, he's going to, um, uh, and he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and that's going to be kind of the pinnacle work is the raising of Lazarus from the dead until his own death and and, and uh, resurrection. Um, but the uh, so that, that maybe that the chronology is you know it's something that I I don't get too bogged down in trying to answer that question, um, even though maybe there is a sense in which John is. Uh, his readers do know Mark, and he's interested in, in them doing that kind of harmonizing work. Um, I also think that we, we want to avoid going too overboard on that, uh, so that John's words kind of become uh, uh, reduced in that in that broader chorus. The second question has to, you know, the second point that I want to address has to do with the um, the nature of the work of the Father and the Son, and um, I brought up this, this phrase in a previous uh, study when we were, were walking through the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, inseparable operations, if you remember that. This is the idea that all of the external works of God are undivided. And what we mean by that is there's never a situation where God the Father goes and acts and does something external to himself while the Son and the Spirit are kind of uninvolved in that work. Uh, Likewise, the Son never goes and acts outside of himself where the Father is not involved or the Spirit is not involved. We would, we would use this, this kind of language, focusing on prepositions, to help to kind of illustrate that. When we think about the work of creation. It's not like the Father says, I think I'm going to create today. I, I, excuse me for kind of speaking colloquially in this way. Um, but he, it's not like he, he goes and creates and, and um, the Son and the, and the Spirit are uninvolved in that. We would say that the Father created the world through the Son by the Spirit. And we can see evidence of that in, in, the, in the creation account, at least with re- reflect of the Spirit. We can see it in the testimony of, say, Colossians 1, where we read that through the Son all things were created. We can look at Hebrews 1, and we can see this kind of thing. The Father acts external to himself through the Son by the Spirit. And we see that here in this text. So, for instance... For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 
This is not precisely saying that, uh, that their, their works of resurrection are, uh, that they're, they're both involved in the same life-giving works, um, but you do see that there's the, the sameness in quality, that what the Father does, the Son does likewise in terms of that resurrection work, that life-giving work, the raising of the dead. The next phrase is, is different. Uh, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. It doesn't mean that the Father, it's not to say that the Father is uh, uninvolved in the judgment. His judgment of all creation is executed through the Son. But that's like how all, all of these works that we talk about. How did God create the world? He created the world through the Son, by the Spirit. And so he will also judge through the Son. Now there is, we do have to deal with the fact that he does say that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And later on down we'll see um, in verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Uh, D.A. Carson talks about this in his commentary and how that, usually when we see the Son of Man it comes with the article, um, I don't want to get too deep into the questions of how to of Greek grammar. But probably this is distinct from those references that, that refer to Daniel's uh, one like a son of man, but might better be you know, thought of in terms of his humanity as a reference to him as a son of man, a son of Adam, a, a human being. And it, so it brings our, we, we talk about the whole study that we're engaged in, where we're considering the person of work of Christ as Christ is one who is, uh, the Son of God who became incarnate, who took to himself a human nature, became like us, and how that qualifies him to do all of these works that are necessary for our salvation. Works like dying for our sins, works like mediating for us as our great high priest, works like um, being the, the, the greater prophet that Moses said would come from among you, one from among your brothers God will raise up as uh, one like me, right? all of these uh, things that Christ does. And judgment is part of that. That, that one of the things that qualifies Christ to be, uh, uh, to, to stand as the judge um, is the fact that he became like us. He had our weakness. He endured what we've endured. That he himself without sin. At the end of uh, time when he returns, he will stand as judge, as the one who is both the Son of God and Son of Man, both fully God and fully man. Who is, and this is the one to whom God has granted that right to execute judgment, who has been appointed. So in, in terms of his humanity, he is Lord. We, we, we remember from Paul's preaching at Athens, whom God has appointed um, to judge the living and the dead, right? So there's this, there's the bringing together, the execution of that office in terms of his humanity as Christ, and his deity, uh, as the Son of God, to whom God has granted this right to judge. Um, trying to say that the best I can. The, um, you, you see the sense here, though, that the the idea that uh, what John is is laying before us is that the Son acts in accordance with what the Father does. He does it as something that's been granted to him by the Father in terms of his works. But it's, it's things that are the same things that, that, that are things the Father does. And so there's a, a oneness, there's an inseparability to those works, and yet the execution, um, I think Matt and I had a conversation like this, the, the works may be inseparable, but that doesn't mean we can't distinguish what the father, you know, the father from the son in the work, right? And in terms of the judgment, we can certainly see that that execution of the judgment is then is media is through through the son. We can distinguish the role, and yet we we dare not say that the father is um, is separated from that work. I think that it's uh, do not marvel. It's like do not marvel that I've said this. Do not marvel at what I've just said. Don't be don't be surprised that I you know um, 
as if to, um, I say this, I say this tentatively, not 100% sure, but I think that, it's, that this is the idea. It's like, kind of like you should know this already. Don't be, don't be surprised that I say this, but you will marvel at these, these greater works that will be given to me, which will serve as a testimony from the Father. We've seen that kind of flow of things. God has given these works to the Son that he might manifest his glory, and they serve as a testimony concerning who he is as the Son of God. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is interesting to note that there is a you will marvel at this, but do not marvel at, you know, at this. Um, I think, you know, it does remind me certainly of, of um, I think it's Nathaniel, when um, Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed. Uh, and Nathaniel says, How do you know me? And he says, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. He's like, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you know, you, because I said, I saw you in the fig tree, you believe, you will see greater works than this. Um, you kind of see this pointing forward. Uh, there's going to be a greater, he doesn't use the exact same words, but that same idea of you're marveling at this. You're going to see things that are going to make you marvel. Um, So we, we've talked a bit about the quality of the Son to the Father that's, that's uh, evident here in what Jesus says. We, we've talked a bit about the unity of the Son with the Father. It's also evident. Uh, we've seen the distinctness of the Son with the Father, particularly in language like the Father sending the Son, the Father showing the Son what he's doing, um, that, that the, the Father granted, has granted life to the Son, life in himself, that self-existent life that the Father has granted to the Son as well, uh, points to a distinctness of, relation, uh, of relationship um, uh, that is appropriate, you know, based on the language of Father and Son. As we look down then into verse 30 uh, through 47 then, as we, we think more about this idea of testimony, um, we, we've looked at this text a little bit before when we talked about John and when we talked about um, Moses, and so I don't want to uh, revisit everything that we said there. But it is interesting that um, here, this testimony is the greater testimony. What, um, what Jesus shows in these works and what the Father has said concerning him, this is the greater testimony. So he points back to John's witness, and he, uh, he says, you rejoiced for a little while in John's witness, and you sent to him, and he did, you know, he testified to these things. But he's speaking to people who, you know, don't really want to believe it, don't want to accept it, in fact, want to, want to reject it now because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. And he's going to later sit, talk about them not believing the testimony of Moses and the scriptures and what they've said concerning him. But the greater testimony, the, the greatest testimony is in the testimony of the Father, which we see in the two, um, in what he said already, but also in the, the works that he's given him. And even on this basis, the, many of the people who see these works are not going to believe. But from our vantage point, we, if we're applying the principle that we've talked about in the past of multiple trustworthy attestation, being a valid principle for which we evaluate the truth of something, we see that we have strong reason to believe what Jesus is saying. Uh, concerning himself. Look at what he says in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, right? So you have the application of that principle uh, that you need two or three witnesses. So if, it's, if I'm the only one who's saying this, that's the idea. If I'm alone bearing this testimony, it's not true. You don't have to believe it. But I'm not alone in bearing this testimony, is the idea. There's another who bears witness about me. And I know that that testimony, that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So here in verse 32, he's speaking about the testimony of the Father. But before he gets there, he, he goes through that whole bit about John's testimony before he introduces the greater testimony in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me. The Father has sent me. 
Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So I'll stop there. Time is, is uh, eluding us, but, I, but I'll say this about the, um, this idea. You know, it might at first seem a little bit circular when we're trying to understand why do we, why do we believe what we believe concerning the Son, about who he is, which is this crucial claim uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is fully God, fully man, that he came to die for our sins, to rise again, that he'll come to judge once again the living and the dead. Why do we believe those things? It may seem like we're just kind of going round and round, of, you know, okay, here's John, and John bears witness to the testimony of the Father. And, but it's, it's not a, you know, when you, when you operate from this principle of corroborating witness, you realize it's not as circular as it might at first seem. We're not dependent upon one testimony, right? It's all of these different witnesses who are corroborating one another, who are uh, together testifying um, uh, uh, the same test, are bearing witness to the same thing. Uh, we, we think of Jesus' own words in that particular context of the people he's addressing. The people who are hearing him say these words are familiar with John. They've, they've seen John, right? They've heard John's witness. They're familiar with Scripture. They, these are people who believe the Old Testament. They're familiar with what Moses said, even if they clearly have not fully understand his predictions concerning the Christ. So you've got these, uh, now you have Jesus' uh, own testimony, what he's saying about himself, corroborated by John as a prophet, corroborated by Moses, corroborated by the Father's own testimony uh, uh, through John, but also through the works he's given to Jesus. And all of those things should work together in that context to confirm what Jesus is saying. And this, for us, of course, all of it, we, we, we step back and we say, well, this is all John, uh, the apostle, writing, right? It's all one man recording all these things. Nevertheless, we do have that same principle that, that works for us, is that we, we've considered Matthew, we've considered Luke, been considering Luke on Sunday mornings, we've considered Mark during Sunday school, We've looked at these different witnesses, and we've looked at the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, and we've got all of these different witnesses, reference to other people who bore witness, all corroborating the same testimony concerning the person and work of Christ. And so we've got that, you know, if we operate on this very reasonable, very valid principle for how we know things to be true, we have good reason, solid reason to believe what we believe concerning Jesus, concerning who he is, concerning what he's done. We should also have uh, recognized the motivation then, just in closing, the motivation that this passage highlights for why we, the urgency behind believing it. Why does this even matter? Why is it so important? The simple fact is because of what Jesus says about life and judgment throughout this text. The, the two works that he focuses on throughout this text are life-giving works and works of judgment. There are many things that God gave him to do, but here the focus is on those things. It is through faith in him that one finds life. It is through coming to the Son that one finds life. It is through receiving his testimony that one finds life, passes from death into life. You see, you know, all throughout that consistent reference to life and how it's received through the Son as one comes to him. Similarly, there's that consistent reference to judgment. All judgment has been given to him. He will judge in accordance with what he hears from the Father, in accordance with the will of the Father, and so his judgment is just. There's a day when he will, you look in verse 29, when he, or verse 28 and verse 29, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So we see what we've seen so often elsewhere, that great urgency that attends these questions about who Jesus is and what it is that he came to do. It's not just some, as I said when we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, not just some high academic lofty, uh, you know, uh, theological uh, discussion that, that we don't need to concern ourselves with. Of course, there's language that we can say, you know, I don't understand the, the language of the theologians and what they right in their books, but at the end of the day, recognizing Jesus rightly for who he is in accordance with what, what's revealed for us in the word is a matter of uh, extraordinary urgency. And so I, we go through this because I want you to be, uh, well, know 
you know, have greater certainty within yourself, greater assurance within yourself concerning who you say he is, how you answer that question, who do I say that he is, and what did he come to do, but also the importance of presenting that to others, how you share the gospel, how you call other people to faith, the importance of urgency of, of that, that question, and what it is that we call them to believe concerning Jesus Christ. You don't honor the Son, and you don't honor the Father. That's what he says. You honor the Son, you honor the Father. And it's, a, it's pretty, you know, um, uh, pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but uh, very striking reality. So when we think about those questions of how do we share the gospel, how do we call people to faith, these are the, these are the kinds of things that we, we want to think about is what kind of faith are we calling people to? What are we calling people to believe? What are we ourselves called to believe? And it's really bound up in those simple questions. Who do I say that he is? And what did he come to do for me? Let me uh, close in a word of prayer and then we'll pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you would help us to comprehend these things which are difficult to understand, a text that is hard to untangle, it's hard to um, present, hard to articulate and represent. And yet the teaching is at the same time plain and clear concerning who Jesus is, concerning what he came to do, and what he will come to do when he returns. Lord, help us to believe, help us to trust, help us to look to that day with joy. And while we wait, help us to be um, faithful and um, help us to labor uh, with all of our energy uh, to share the gospel with our neighbors, to call people to faith in the one through whom we find life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.